I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Andy J Podcast. Now we have a huge guest on the way, a guest who I was told months ago there was no chance that we'd be able to have the sort of time we were asking for with him. We could have six minutes or 12 minutes perhaps. And I believe that for many of the other media outlets, that's exactly what they got, 12 minutes or so. We, however, were incredibly lucky. Jeremy granted us an hour of his time. So a whole hour with Jeremy Clarkson. As far as I can tell, we're the only place that have got it. And what a chat we had. I mean, goodness me. The key thing for me to tell you here is Jeremy was incredible. He didn't duck a single question. And we talk about all kinds of stuff. So I really hope you enjoy this chat. Love you to share it. Tell your friends about it. And if you're a first time listener to the Andy J podcast, why not check out our massive back catalogue of celebrity conversations? There's plenty in there for petrol heads and celebrity fans alike from James May and Nico Rosberg to Darren Brown and David Baddiel. Anyway, let's dive in. The Andy J Podcast. Jeremy Clarkson, I'm so thrilled to be able to chat to you. And I just want to say, first and foremost, thank you for being our whole show guest. A whole hour with you isn't something that I've heard many other people have had. So really appreciate this. I didn't. Yes, I mean, yes. Well, let's see how it works out. You'll probably say in an hour's time, well, that was a complete waste of time. And I'm never going to get that hour back. (laughs) <laughs> well, let's let's hope you don't say that. And, you know, it's a, it's a two-way tango, isn't it? And you know how this works. You've had your own chat show before. It's all about kind of one and two, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, look, obviously, there's a huge push for the new show, A Massive Hunt. It's brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. We're going to be chatting about that in detail. But before we get there, can we have a chat about you? If you'd like. Well, I would. I'd love that. We're going to start with the early days, if that's all right. I want to take you back to Doncaster. You know, born and raised in Doncaster, your Mm -hmm. parents, your dad, travelling salesman, your mother, a teacher and an artist. Did you think Mm -hmm. when you were, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, did you think, do you know what? When I'm 60, I'm going to be one of the most famous people on the planet and also owning a farm and all over the place on television, etc. Did you think that was a possibility? No, at 10, I was fairly confident I was going to be king. I think. <laughs> I, I, yeah, no, I've I got it in my head that you could be king and that I simply would be king. Um, I couldn't see anything else that really appealed. I mean, I've never really, all the way through school when they said, what do you want to do when you leave? I've never really been able to answer it because I just thought, well, I'd just like to be king. So why say I want to be an accountant or a lawyer? Well, I don't want to be an accountant or a lawyer. I want to be a king. So King would be interesting, specifically king of, of England. Well, no, I didn't really care what I was king of. I just quite fancied being a king. I just wanted some ermine and some jewels. 
So, you know, you're 10, so you've got no idea, have you? Um, so life, I mean, this is why I've always said you should never, ever have an ambition because you either achieve it, in which case, so what, the rest of your life is empty and pointless, or you don't achieve it, in which case your whole life is, uh, is a series of disappointments. So never have an ambition. This has always been a, uh, a mantra of mine. Never, ever, ever set yourself targets or ambitions because nothing good will come of it. But I mean, doesn't that have an adverse effect as well? Because if you never, if you're never reaching for the stars, as it were, then what are you going to do with yourself? Well, you just wait for the stars to come and pick you up. I mean, you're either lucky or you're unlucky, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's no amount of setting ambitions or goals is going to achieve that. I mean, every single morning I wake up and look in the mirror and think, I must lose weight. I have a target. I'll lose two stone by in two months. And that means when the two months has gone by and I haven't managed to achieve it, I'm filled with (laughs) self-loathing. So I've learned to not have those targets and just look in the mirror and say, God, I'm getting fat. I must go and have a bacon sandwich. (laughs) Well, you're you're activating your pleasure zone. And what's wrong with that? I mean, this is an interesting one, Jeremy, because, you know, it seems to me like you've had this innate ability to fall on your feet throughout your life. Oh, oh, constantly, on on an hourly basis. I've... I, I mean, people tell me it's difficult to find parking spaces in central London, for example. Well, not to me it isn't. I simply go and think, well, I should park outside the office where I'm going or the edit suite or the restaurant, whatever it might be. And there is always a parking space there. Usually, in the days when we had parking meters, with a broken parking meter that was jammed on two hours. So, I, I mean, honestly, my life is a series of extraordinary good fortune. Do you feel that? No, no, it really is. It, it really it always has been. And, and I, I look with horror at people who have bad luck and think, God, that must be depressing. Um, but I've never really had bad luck. This is really interesting to hear. Did this come, do you think, from your parents? Because, you know, if you don't mind me saying, you know, they decided early doors when little Jeremy was little Jeremy that you were going to go to a private school. And yet, from from what I can glean, they didn't necessarily have the resources to be able to do that. They just decided... No, none at all. Yeah. No, they had no clue. I mean, I was in Doncaster without... I mean, Doncaster in the 1970s was a very rough town. Um, and they looked at the local school and didn't want precious little Jeremy going to that. So um, they thought, well, he's going to go to a private school. But obviously, they had absolutely no idea how on earth they would, would be able to afford to do that. No idea. But they put me down anyway. And then good fortune came along, and they started a successful business. And um, and I was able to go to private school. So that was the first bit of luck, really, that came my way. So do you think that luck came from your parents or came from you? Well, I don't know. It's hard to be able to pinpoint that particular bit of luck. I suppose it was lucky from their point of view because they got this precocious little prig who wants to be king out of their house and into a private boarding school. Um, so they were very lucky to be rid of me, I guess. But um, <laughs> And the boarding school is actually down to Paddington Bear, right? Yeah, it was, that was it. I mean, my mum made my sister and I um, a Paddington each for Christmas, the one in wellies and hat and everything. And um, and she had a little tiny business making tea cozies and draft excluders and, and um, so on and so forth. But just and then even just to keep her busy in the evenings, really. And um, so she just cobbled together these two Paddingtons, and everybody said, "Oh, you should you should um, sell those." And so she did. And of course, Paddington was a very um, successful toy in the late seventies, early eighties, I guess. 
um, which which meant that my sister and I could could go and get um, you know private education. Was it a slightly weird thing to think you know my mum's created this cuddly character that the world now knows? Well, no, because obviously the books existed before, so everybody knew about Paddington because the books have been around since the late fifties, right. when Michael Bond um, wrote them. But it was the, it was the, the, the you know the three D incarnation of the books, and now we've got the movies, obviously, which are sort of even better. But um, well, the second one was particularly good. Um, yeah, it, so Paddington was a huge phenomenon. You could buy Paddington pajamas and Paddington everything toward the end. But um, no, she was the first, I think, to, to be you know licensed to make a make a toy. Well, it was very smart, really, wasn't it? I mean, she spotted it. Yeah, well, it was it. lucky. It was lucky. It was lucky. I mean, had she not decided to make it to Paddington, then that wouldn't have happened. And had my dad not bumped into Michael Bond in the lift, they would never have got on and become friends, and the license probably wouldn't have been granted. So it's all, it, life is a series of lucky breaks. I mean, you can go to school, work hard, go to university, work hard, get an internship, work hard. Stab your colleagues in the back, can I suck up to your boss, have presenteeism, and you know, inch your way up that way, or you can just be lucky. And I've, I've just been very, very lucky. You have been incredibly lucky. Yes, it's been yes, I have. And, it's, and it's interesting because obviously, you know, Paddington Bear and so on and so forth got you to Repton. And I mean, obviously, with hindsight, it's easy to, to look back and say, well, it was lucky because you got expelled from Repton, but, but also prior to the being expelled. You didn't have a great time there, did you? You weren't. You were. You no, were quite victimised. No, I was having the first two years. I got bullied, but um, you know, have to be careful how you phrase this. I don't necessarily think, in my case, that the bullying I got for the first two years was, was a bad thing. It sort of sharpened me up and brought me to my senses. And um, I appreciate that for many, many, many people, bullying is horrific. But um, it just wasn't for me particularly. I mean, it was horrible to suffer from it, but I look back and was grateful for what it made me become, if that makes sense. Um, so, um, yeah, but again, being expelled, you're right, I was. But then I was walking down the village street, bumped into a man who was the general manager of the local newspaper, the Doncaster Evening Post, and he said, what are you doing here? I thought you'd be at school. I said, I've been expelled. He said, how? Well, you'll have to be a journalist then. So that was lucky um, <laughs> that I bumped into him because I thought I hadn't even considered journalism. So I thought, mm, all right, fair enough. Wrote two various different local papers in the in the area, Rotherham, Gould, and Doncaster, and so on. And I went for the first interview with the Rotherham advertiser, and the editor um, said to me, "You know, you, uh, I'd written in my application letter that if I was successful, I'd be the fourth uh, fourth generation of my family to be associated with papers, newspapers in in Yorkshire." And he said, who were the others? And I explained. And I said, and then there was my grandfather, who was the doctor on the Doncaster Gazette. And he said, what, Dr. Ward? So I said, yeah. And he went, he delivered my first baby in an air raid in the Second oh. World War. You start on Monday. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but another so stroke of I air. had no qualifications. Now, don't tell me that that's got anything to do with how much I paid attention in English or, or maths or chemistry. It was just my grandfather in the war hauled himself out of bed to go and deliver the stranger's baby and then there we are what was it 20 30 years later i get a job as a result of it it sort of resets the old adage it's not what you know it's who you know but it's actually it's not what you know it's who your grandfather has delivered a baby for <laughs> that was it the editor or the man who went on to become the editor of the rotherham advertiser um <laughs> so that you know there we are that was that was the reason i'm sitting talking to you now is because 
got nothing to do with the private education. It's, uh, it's um, that was by the by. It was um, it was just because I went into journalism, which I discovered I loved. I just adored it. I adore newspapers. Well, it's one of those things that I think is universally agreed on. You know, whatever people feel about your opinions or what side of the fence you're sitting on for whatever whatever things happening, everyone I think has to accept that you are a sensational writer and author a journalist. Oh, you are very kind. That's a very kind thing to say because it's the only thing I really care about, whether I'm writing for television or, or newspapers or anything, really. I just love writing. I just adore it. So, um, yeah, I'm very, so it's nice when you say, um, you know, you enjoy it. But, um, well, I mean, it follows you around, Jeremy. Obviously, I've, you know, I, prior to this, I've chatted to a few people that have worked with you or aware of you or whatever. And the feedback, you know, I've made a TV car show myself and, and I, I, we've shared a director, for example. And, and one of the things he said to me is... Who's that? Uh, Ewan, Ewan Keel. Oh, God, that's a blast from the past. Oh, good old Ewan. Yeah, yeah. yeah lovely Ewan. Um, mm. We've just done a show together for Discovery. Great fun. And he said to me, Ooh. do you know, one of the things, Jeremy's scripts were always absolutely sensational first first pass brilliant perfect that's what i like doing now you know and you try making james may interesting that that takes a lot of work <laughs> well i had a pleasure so in his company for an hour i thought he was lovely <laughs> well you know what even without my script yeah no on an hour what did he get through the weather forecast in an hour? Um, <laughs> he was very nice about you yeah you say i bet he wasn't you try to get james to say things quickly you know request Hey, James, could you just say that again? Only take less than two and a half hours to say it. That would be good. Um, but no, so no, but the writing on any level is just great fun. Um, I, I really enjoy it. It's just the best, it's the best fun. I've heard it said sometimes that, that sometimes you, you will write things that aren't necessarily what you believe, but because it's a good opinion and it looks good on the page, it's going Oh, to yeah, happen. definitely. People say to me, you know, I write newspaper columns for The Sun and The Sunday Times. And they'll say, well, you've contradicted what you said last week. I, I know I've changed my mind. But an opinion is like a suit. You go into a shop, you try it on, you think, oh, this looks pretty good. And then you get home and you think, actually, it looks terrible. I'm, I can't wear this. Or a shirt or a pair of shoes. And, and that's what opinions are like. I mean, one day I wake up in the morning, you know, I'm absolutely convinced I've got the, the COVID totally nailed. So I could write a column, this is what I think. And then in the evening, you just think, oh, it's just dribble. There's appalling. And then the next week you write the complete opposite. But that's what, you know, newspapers are all about, changing your mind. I mean, anyone who doesn't change their mind is an idiot. Does it ever bother um, you, though? I mean, do you, ever, do you ever kind of think back to something you've said that day and kind of make find you blushing because it's like, oh, I was that guy today. Oh, really? No. No, you can't be embarrassed if you thought it at the time. Um, it's no biggie. It's, it was just that's what I thought then. And everyone's got different opinions on everything, and there's no reason why people can't change their minds and have different opinions. I do. Yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a matter of course. And yes, sometimes I will write something down if I think it's funny, even if I don't believe it, just because I think, well, that will hopefully brighten somebody's Sunday morning. So I'll write it down. And then it's nice when somebody writes and says that brightened my Sunday morning. Do you mind if they say the opposite, though? Because, of course, you know, when. when... No. No. <laughs> Well, not at all. No, not at all. You should write. You should write, uh, or do any. Everything you do should be aimed to make fifty-one percent of the population happy. <laughs> that's all you need. Literally, well, you anyone who says I'm going to try and make everyone happy that way lies madness. Because that's you know that's the problem with Hollywood actors. They aren't allowed to have an opinion on anything. You know, oh, we've got to keep everyone happy all the time. 
Um, and you see it with sports stars now as well. They have these agents who say, oh, no, don't have an opinion on this. And don't mention these things. For sake, come yeah. on, say yeah. something, move the world around. And, it's like that with um, Formula One drivers, you know, they're so... I, just, I, 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 was, I got the brakes on just before I said Formula One drivers. Um, but, you know, there's Kimi Raikkonen, and then there's all the others. I said Vettel can be quite um, fun. But all the rest of them, it just they come out of the sort of mould of this is what you say. But, you know, it's interesting once they retire, though. I mean, for example, I, I had the fortune of, of, of a long chat with Nico Rosberg a couple of months ago. And prior to my, I'd, I'd met him before in racing and whatnot, and, and he'd always been the Iceman. You know, you wouldn't get a smile, there's no laughter, sure, there's nothing. Sure, sure. Chat to him now he's retired. Couldn't be more inviting into his life, telling you everything and sharing his secrets and all that. And it's, it's just so interesting to think, you know, right, it's, it's, it's so controlled and it doesn't need to be because they are human beings and that's all right. Well, I mean, that's exactly it. As soon as they escape the clutches of the agents that run them, then they can be who they are, which I'm not suggesting in order to be a Formula One driver, you have to be a robot. But they're turned into robots while they're Formula One drivers. All footballers, all tennis players, not all tennis players, but some, most of them. Because if you want to get a sponsorship deal, you, you cannot afford to upset one single person in the world, never mind 49% of it. You know, if you've got Rolex paying you millions of pounds a year to wear a Rolex watch, and you say, I don't like Belgium, then <laughs> Rolex will ditch you. So you can't say, I don't, I mean, I do like Belgium. I don't know why I picked on Belgium just then, but, I was wondering you know, it's an they example. Upset you. you know, lovely chocolates. Yeah, it's quite, no, no, I very much enjoy my time in Bruges and so on. But no, no it's, um, and just picking on Belgium as an example of what you aren't allowed to do. And it's, it's such a shame, really, because it just means we look at all sportsmen and all Hollywood actors as being these sort of dreary, empty shells of people. Um, which needn't necessarily be the case. Do you think this is partly down to social media, though? Because when you and I started out yeah. in the industry, there was nothing like Facebook or Twitter or anything like that existed. No, I mean, the amount of time... Twitter just generates the Daily Mail, as far as I know. So somebody does something, two people on Twitter react, and then the Daily Mail then can write a story, so Twitter reacted in fury. And even if everybody on Twitter reacted... It's still a tiny percentage of the people in the world. So Twitter is meaningless. It's a, it's a, it's a meaningless and actually sort of dangerous that people think it has meaning. Um, now, they all, I, I'm, social media, I do it. I actually enjoy a lot of it. But, God, it's dangerous, really dangerous. Do you find it's yourself dangerous. holding yourself back? Uh, you do. You, not, I'm less so than most people probably, but... Um, no, no, you do hold yourself back because you sometimes think, I just can't be bothered to deal with a call from the Daily Mail tomorrow saying, you said this and you spark fury and you think, oh, for heaven's sake, come on. Um, but sometimes I'm feeling bullish with a bottle of wine. I think, oh, how well, I'll write this <laughs> and uh, take the consequences. Do you know, that's something, I'm, I'm very good friends with Ian Callum, who I think is just a joy. You probably know him as well, former... Yeah, uh, designer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. for Jaguar. And he once said to me, you know, the most dangerous thing in, in the modern world now is a bottle of wine, the evening, and opening Twitter. Mm. There should be a breathalyzer on people's phones, I mean. <laughs> I mean you... You're not allowed to operate your telephone. You can't phone up old girlfriends. You can't go on social media unless you can prove that you're sober. <laughs> do, do you know, we, we could end up in that direction. 
You know, it's you can see how the world's changing. It's it's a possibility that it might happen. Well, have you seen Black Mirror? Yes, I love Black Mirror. Yeah, well, Black Mirror. I mean, that's just that, that's Charlie Brooker exploring all of the, you know, if we just allow modern life to carry on in, in the direction it's going unchecked, this is where we're going. It's uh, there's some properly fascinating, thought-provoking programs in that series. Yeah. I think it's just awesome. Absolutely, one of the best things I've ever seen on television. Black Mirror. Couldn't agree more. He's absolutely, he's mm. sensational, his kind of thought processes mm. and the way he carries them out. Amazing. Well, and of course, he's, yeah. got, he's got a sensational budget to do it with as well, which kind of helps. You know. well, yes, he, well, he has, but it's actually the writing. Yeah. I mean, I used to enjoy Weekly Wife, but I'm a great fan of Charlie Brooker. But um, no, I, he's just a very, very, very good writer, is what he is. And he's got a great mind. That's, and those two, a combination of those two things makes him very watchable. Basically, shows very watchable. Will you be discussing him on your on your big TV review on Christmas Day, Clarkson on TV? Uh, no, but I did see for the PR department at ITV when they said it's like Weekly Wife, and I went, "Now come on, that is a very high bar." <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it's, yeah, yes, it's not like it's not like Weekly Wife. I'm not Charlie Brooker. Come on. I mean, and then I said, "Well, what about Clive James's?" No, no, no. Again, again. <laughs> saying, Stop saying names of people I can't keep up with. You know, I think to myself, Jeremy Clarkson, there's, he must be, he must fear nothing. But actually, that, yeah, that's a bar to stand to, isn't it? You know, it's like Jeremy It's like saying for the Queen of Tonga, you're like a Queen of England. No, no, she's a really big Queen, an important Queen. Don't make me out to be the Queen of England. <laughs> so if you read a review, like on Boxing Day or something, where someone says, "Oh, it was a bit like Charlie Brooker's Weekly What," will that be no. day made? Oh, no, I'd just have to get under a table and not come out till March. <laughs> well, even once it's got out and it's been done and it's it's happened. Oh, yes, I know, but then you think, well, shall I do another and then they'll ring and say, would you like to do another? No, because somebody said it was like Charlie Brooker, but not as good. <laughs> I don't imagine you as a man that has much in terms of pressure, surely. You, I mean, do you ever get nervous about anything, ever? Absolutely everything. I mean, in, including, you know, even when you rang... Doing this interview, I get you know you always think, oh God, what if I get something? You know, I'm always nervous. Nerves are what keep you, yeah, keep you sharp. You're not nervous. You're not going to be doing. You're not going to be paying any attention to it. How do they present to you? Are you are you a tummy bug kind of guy? Is it funny breathing, palpitations, faster heart? No, no, it's not like that. It's just a, a genuine, a, a, a sense of unease, a sense of disquiet. So is what it is. There's so, just a sort of there's a disturbance in the force. Nobody can really explain what that is, but there is a disturbance in the force on a day like today when I'm, you know, talking about this and the other to all sorts of different people. You sort of, I didn't sleep much last night because I was nervous. Well, I was not expecting that. You talk about the force. Are you the dark side or are you a Jedi? No, it's a problem. Who knows? But whichever side I'm on, they, they talk of this disturbance in the force, and I definitely I know sort of what I don't know what the force is, but if there was a force, then I can sense a disturbance in it when I'm about to do things in the public eye, whether it's television, radio, writing anything. You're always nervous, or you should be. That's interesting, and and I guess that's yeah. what keeps you going, is it? And that's what because you you've had plenty of opportunities where you could have just gone. Do you know what? I've got everything I need now. I'm good. I'm good. I'll just go and be on the farm, and that's that. Well, no, because everything I need is carrying on writing. That's all I want to do is carry on writing. I don't want to just do farming unless I can write about it. You know, there's, there's, I've seen no point in doing anything unless you write about it. Okay. Um, so, 
but then you get nervous writing. <laughs> well, much less so writing because you can always go back and cross it out and start again and you know jiggle things around. You Which f- is what I do a lot. I was going to say, are you a fierce critic? Do you are you a kind of multiple? Well, I write. No, I was right. I can write a newspaper column in twenty minutes, but then it can take me two days to mess around with it and change all the sentences and move commas and things. But what, yeah, what's your process with it, Jeremy? Do, do you? I mean, do you start thinking of the ideas in the tractor or whatever? Or 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 when well, you're think of them as I'm going to sleep. Think of them as I'm going to sleep at night, and I've normally got the first half written in my head. I can get up in the morning and vomit it onto the onto the computer really quickly, and then I'll sometimes find myself going to go. Well, how is it going to turn out? It's exciting, <laughs> and it's like you're reading a book, but you're writing it. I wonder what's going to happen next. What's going to be? And, and that's a, I really enjoy it when that happens. When I don't know what the ending is going to be, that's... until you've got an internal clock that says that was twelve hundred words. Stop writing now. Is that where it ends? Um, you're just like, okay, got it, done, stop. Well, that's what they want is twelve hundred words. Um, well, that's the motoring column is 1,200 words. The other one is 1,040 words. Okay. Um, and it's funny because when you write, I know when I've got to 1,040 words. Um, it's really weird, but you can always tell. Um, yeah, so but you, you sort of know, and then you go back and it can take days and days and days to make it work properly. Blimey. Well, look, let's go back to the timeline of you because we... we... Got a bit of a tangent with Charlie Brooker and whatnot. So we've we've done the Wilhelm Advertiser and the Wolverhampton Express and so on and so forth. You're still a young man, and you decide, you know what? It's time to peddle my wares in London. So mm-hmm. you you basically moved to London, as far as I can tell, because it's London. You just wanted to be there, rather than there was a job. Oh, there wasn't a job. No. Um, I, I, what it was was I had a, a girlfriend in Doncaster, and I came home from the work at the Rotherham Advertiser one day and said to her. We've got some new uh, office furniture in the office today, and I thought, wait a minute, that's if, if that, that's the most interesting thing I can think to say. <laughs> At yeah. the time, I broadened my horizons, <laughs> so I left and came to I left and came to London with no job. No, my mum and dad were very kind to say I could sell Paddington's, which wasn't really a job, but just gave me something to do and, and a small income while I got settled in London. But I had a lot of friends in London, so um, it became extremely social, let's put it that way. So you basically um, moved to improve the quality of your conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it was more interesting <laughs> things to write about. You know, I mean, bless it, local newspapers are fantastic and they perform a very, very important service, but after a short while, I mean, if you've seen Afterlife, you can sort of see the level of the stories that you have to cover when there's damp in people's wallpaper and they say it's Kenneth Branagh's face. <laughs> um, and, you know, you think, okay, right, it's time for me to get out and see a, a bigger world. And so, yeah, no, London really did beckon. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people from outside London who hates London or one of those people who live by and large in London for, what, 40 years now uh, who hates the countryside. I still absolutely adore London. It, when I get come down the M40 and I get near it and I can see the post office tower, I get a, a little frisson of excitement because I just love it. It's a, I still think by, and I've seen most of the world's capital cities and most of the world's big cities now, um, I still think London is head and shoulders above any, any other city in the world. It's a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant place. Do you think that will continue? I don't want to get too political, but, you know, just briefly. Do you think that will continue post-Brexit? 
Well, it's, it's Sadiq Khan, who's the, without wishing to get too political either, who's the biggest problem London has at the moment. Um, uh, I can't understand any of his policies, but um, post-Brexit, who knows? I mean, I have no idea because I don't know any... I, I don't know any of the things that are being discussed and I don't know what any of the consequences will be. As I talk to you, we still have no deal. I don't know what no deal will mean. I don't know what world WTO rules are. I don't know. You know, people are commenting on these things when they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And I'm not going to be the one to do that. I I was a very keen Remainer. I campaigned for Remain. I didn't want to leave Europe. I still have a desperate sense of sadness that we are leaving Europe. I think no good will come of it. But we must all do our best to make sure, you know, we make the best of a bad job, really. Yes. Um, and stop whinging, and everyone's going to have to start up a little bakery, I guess. That's the only way we can solve this, I think. Well, you've started up a farm shop, so, you know. I have started up a farm shop, exactly. It's, um, I've decided that's where, well, if, it may well be if we have no deal, as far as I can understand it. But please, if you're listening, don't take this as gospel. You know, that there may be some issues getting certain sorts of food in from Europe for a little while. Mm. Um, so I've sort of had that in mind. So, well, I'll start a farm shop, you know, cause, and then people will always be able to get food from me. Yes. That I've grown. Yeah. Well, yes, that was a disaster. That's how little <laughs> I knew about farming when I started as I built the farm shop. Because you go to a supermarket and there it is. There's cucumbers and radishes and strawberries and avocados all year round. And I so you assume, well, that's easy then. Well, I opened my farm shop where it became built and ready. In It's tiny. I mean, it's just, what, 20 feet by 10. It's a tiny little old barn. Anyway, it was ready to be opened in February. And the only thing I had to sell that I'd grown was potatoes. I had 32 tons of potatoes to sell <laughs> and nothing, nothing else, nothing. That's all I had. Um and so you start to learn this idea, this idea that people are talking about, I'm talking about now. We must eat seasonal uh, foods and fruits, and only eat what's in season. And you think, well, that sounds great, but in February in the UK, very little is in season. Wow. So. Yeah, I mean, you're covering many bases, though, Jeremy. You've got mash, you've got chips, you've got crisps, the humble baker. Absolutely. You know, when I grew, I I grew lamb. I had 140, well. Seventy odd sheep and one hundred and forty lambs. So you think, well, that's great. And then, but the trouble is, those were sold within, I don't know, a week. So once they'd been butchered, so I thought, oh, right, now what? So lamb was in season. Hmm? Do you find yourself getting attached to them because you've, I mean, you've birthed them yourself. You've, you've kind of. I did birth them myself. I did the whole, you know, the whole Harriet big long rubber glove job on a number of them. no, I did birth them myself, but yes, yeah, so yes, there's a I do get attached to them, but it is a business, and I do love roast lamb. So there's no point crying. You know, you've got to just face up to the facts. It is you're growing food, not pets. Have you had to? Boini and sweet though they are when they first go in the field. Yes, I mean they're, they're so cute. I mean, have you had? To, they are unbelievably you, cute. You've seen so much, Jeremy. You know, you, you, you've alluded to being all around the world, and it's something everyone knows. You, you're always off on these wonderful adventures, but it mm. means you've seen corners of the world that that have been troubled for various reasons. I'm not going climate change on you. I'm just saying they they are not as we know life in the UK. And mm-hmm. there you are, more often than not, in a sort of gas-guzzling, super expensive vehicle that none of them will ever, ever, you know, might be the first time they've ever seen it, you know. In well, actually, last... no, mostly when we're in really, really far-flung parts of the world, we 
tends to be in junk that we bought for two pounds seventy five. <laughs> Gas guzzling stuff tends to go on the track, but I know what you mean. You yeah, know what, you, can, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean. I take your point. So I yeah. guess what I'm trying to ask is: Have you had to, and is this something you have to practice, harden yourself to just sort of try and block it out, like the slaughtering of the lambs and whatnot? Have, have you had to kind of just try and close yourself off to it? No, I mean, I, it, it may sound heartless to say it, but I subscribe to something that um, Rowan Atkinson once said. I think he was in character. I think it was from Not the Nine O'Clock News, when he just went, yes, isn't life tragic? And the truth of the matter is, life is tragic. Some people are very sickly, and and that's tragic. And some people are unable to get on despite great, you know, great brains and great wisdom who may remain hidden, you know, and some people are, like me, virtually devoid of talent, but very lucky. And life is just tragic um, in a number of ways. So when I go around the world, you think, well, it is tragic, but I'm not quite sure what can be done. One hopes that something will eventually be done and we can all be evened up a bit, but um, God alone knows how you might be able to achieve that. Is it, is it something that you do anything about? Have you ever visited a country and then privately, well, I mean, if you tell me it remains, it's, it's no longer private, is it? But Exactly. Yeah. Um, you mean try to help in some way? Yeah. Uh, the, the simple answer to that is yes, but let's go no further than that. And, right. and it wasn't actually as a result of having visited the country, it was having talked to somebody. But um, yeah, no, but I mean, where do you start? I mean, I look, I look now at the world and think of just how much of it, not 10 years ago we could, as a program, we could go to. Mm. But now, the whole of North Africa, with the exception of Morocco, is a no-go area. And I mean, right the way from the top of Nigeria all the way up to um, up, up to Morocco, up through Mali and Chad, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, Sudan, um, Oh, that whole swathe is an absolute no-go area. Then it goes into the Middle East. I mean, it's not, what is it, seven, eight years, ten years, when we drove from Iraq up into eastern Turkey and then down through Syria, through Homs, mm-hmm. through Al-Rakar, through Palmyra, and then into Jordan and then into Israel. Couldn't do that anymore. Huge chunks of out those, all those islands out towards Borneo. That's all the no-go. I mean, we have bombs in Bali now, which make traveling tricky. So... And then you just think, oh, heavens above, the world's falling apart around our ears um, at this rate. I mean, look, there are now terrorist attacks. I was on holiday on an island in northern Mozambique um, two years ago, and that's now an ISIS headquarters. Gosh. So, you know, it's I'm, I'm, the world is slightly terrifying now in how little of it we're able to go, and um, even without COVID, how little of it we're actually able to enjoy anymore. It's sort of it, it's it's quite humbling, isn't it, when you think of it like that? I mean, you've you've obviously oh. seen it, but now now knowing there's places you simply can't go to, it must be a it's a real reality check, isn't it? It's, it's one of the the thing I sometimes look at it on YouTube. When we got to, it was either Homs or Al Rakar, but both of which are very were, were and indeed still are very very troubled and now virtually flattened cities in in Syria. And um, when we got out of our cars there, whenever it was, 10 years ago, there was a huge crowd of people gathered around, and they were all going, welcome in Syria, Captain Slow. And they all, I went into a shop, there was Top Gear was on, 
And they were, oh, it's you. And they all, everybody watched Top Gear and yeah. it. And as far as I could work out, absolutely everybody watched it. And now there's absolutely no way in hell we could go more, more than 20 feet in Syria without being, you know, beheaded on the internet. So, and it, it pulls me because I'm in Damascus. It's one of my favorite cities. I mean, it's in the top five for sure. A really, really nice time in Damascus. And it just, it saddens me. It saddens me greatly looking at the world. Not just the poverty in it, because sometimes poverty, I mean, it's not noble or anything, but, you know, Madagascar, where we've just been, they were actually, I'm, I hate to say it, they were pretty happy. Mm. I mean, if you don't, if you're not sort of sitting looking at Alan Sugar coming through the village every morning in a Rolls Royce, you've got, you've got no idea that people have Rolls Royces and go, you know, have private islands and super yachts. It, everyone's broadly, you know, within the, a certain framework, the same, the same. And some people have got a slightly nicer fishing boat. Some people have got a slightly nicer shack, perhaps on the beach rather than on the other side of the road. And but you know, they seem to be a pretty all football. Once you've got a football and a gang of mates, you know, <laughs> you can have fun. Weather's nice. He's good. Plenty of fish in it. Um, so poverty isn't something that, def- that always necessarily troubles me but um disturbances in in you know isis really does actually yeah. really does trouble me yes and there's very little you can do about that to be fair no well not that i can do that i can think of no 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 unless of course you know i mean if, if we you've you've said historically that you would have been a terrible prime minister because you change your mind a lot but you've also alluded to yeah, you know 10 12 year old you wanting to be a king if you were king of the planet you could probably do something about it couldn't you i mean well, you can't. I just think you know, there's so much describe. I have no idea what's causing it. That's the trouble. When it was when there's a trouble in Ireland or there's trouble in you know whatever it might be, Shining Path or Barnumine Off, you can sort of see what they want, what their goal is. But with ISIS, I have no idea what they want. <laughs> so what do they actually want to do? And I don't know. I've got a clue. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest asking them, Jeremy. I don't think it's uh, don't think it's the wisest. No, yeah, I mean, I'd love to sit. But you can't even you can't even sit them. They don't even have a spokesman. They don't have a Jerry Adams or a Martin McGuinness. They, they have no idea what they want. So, would you make I don't one know of what those, you'd do about it. Would you make one of those sort of Louis Theroux style documentaries if they gave you access? Would you be you know what Cla- do I Clarkson say? No, I wouldn't. ISIS. You know? No, that would be terrible. Can you imagine how frightening that would be? <laughs> it would be terrifying, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I'm just popping it. Oh, dear, it's all gone wrong. I'm upsetting. So, no, I don't think I would do that. No. Well, I don't think even Louis Theroux would do that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's... <laughs> that, yeah. Might be one he act- actively swerves and uh, doesn't, doesn't yeah. let it know he was made the offer. Um, Jeremy, you've, you've mentioned the magic words, Top Gear. I haven't brought them up yet. You know, obviously, from, from moving to London, you were writing car reviews and, and you know, sending those off all, in all different places. Got you on the radar yeah. um, of, of the BBC. And Top Gear, wow. I mean, that was a fun yeah. ride. Oh, was it? It, was, it wasn't it just. Yeah, from the very, you know, driving up to... I remember for the first five years I was on Top Gear, the most I earned was £180 in a year. So, oh. um, exactly. So everyone says, oh, BBC people are overpaid. We weren't then, that's for sure. We got paid almost nothing. And, um, you know, while crews and producers would fly to location, I'd be expected to drive the car through the night to Europe. Um, we were seen very much as the bottom rung of the ladder the worst paid on the set and so on. Um, but, as you say, it put us in front of what at the time was 7 million pounds, sorry, 7 million people a week on a Thursday evening, um, which then does put you on the radar. 
Yes. And then and then it became a super brand and one for which I mean, you you've historically said, I think someone was asking you about a salary. This is when you were making great money from the BBC and you were like, well, yes, I'm mm. getting paid that. But I you know, that's that's in exchange for selfies everywhere I go. Picture, picture, picture. Well, this is what I, I always say this to people who are in the public eye is um, you think, you know, but it's very easy to say, how could you be paid one hundred thousand pounds for an hour's work? And you know, it isn't an hour's work because it's. Every single time you set your foot outside the door, mm. within a minute, somebody's going to ask for a selfie. And it's every minute of your progress along. And every restaurant you go to, every time you go for a wee in a motorway service station, somebody's trying to take a picture of you at the urinal. I mean, it's just constant. So you've actually, you've given over your life. You get paid a lot when you're on television or in the public eye. Because you are expected to give over your entire life. I mean, all of it. It's, you know, you go, if you're a, an accountant in Harpenden, and he put something on social media that's deemed to be offensive or whatever, nobody will pay any attention. If you're Rita Ora and you have a birthday party, you're driven out of the country. So, you know, um, these yeah. are the things that you just have to accept. And how do I'm you getting deal paid with a it? lot. Sorry? How do you deal with it? Does, it? does it bother you? Is it something that you're just like, okay, here we go again? What? Well, no, because I'm very fortunate in that I sort of developed a curmudgeonly uh, sort of image, I suppose, <laughs> and um, which means that when I tell people to uh, go away, let's say, when they ask for a selfie, some people are actually quite pleased that I've been rude to them because it was what they were expecting. <laughs> <me to do. laughs> so, oh, he's just told me to, you know, I won't say the word. That's but, what they um, want. That's what they want. Brilliant. <laughs> they actually want to be told to go away by me, so they're actually quite pleased when I crossly told them to get lost. I try not to with children, obviously. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but but when a fully grown man says, "Can I pose with you for a photograph?" You think, "Oh, for heaven's sake, man!" You know, honestly. But what are you going to do with it? Well, um, so yeah, put it on the I, don't, I don't really, I don't really do selfies. I mean, that's one of the great things about the COVID. You can go out with a beanie on and a face mask. And you can also, if they do recognize you, say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go within six feet of you, so no, go away. Yeah, um, ready-made excuse. Yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it's not, it's just, I mean, people listening will think, well, you've stuck up, you know, you fans to watch you. And I get that. But the fact is, it, when it's every single minute, mm. or, I mean, for example, you come out of your mum's funeral, and there they are. Oh, give a selfie. Yeah. You know, this is what people don't understand. There are times, but how do you know? You could be in a desperate hurry. It's just sometimes people can just be bloody rude. It's it's Michael um, Stipe's. Um, it's been a bad day. Please don't take my picture, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I don't even. I know Michael Stipe's obviously white stripes, but I don't remember that quote. It's but a, it's, it's yeah, a song. everybody. I'm not a white striped fan. He's, sorry, no, he's, he's not white striped. Uh, don't, don't worry, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm going a musical tangent on you there. Um, yeah, which, well, hold on. Uh, Who are you talking about? R.E.M. R.E.M., that's what I meant. R.E.M. I am a R.E.M. fan, actually. I could even I even know the words for night swimming, which oh, wow. most people don't. <laughs> but, um, I can't make any sense of them, but there we are. <laughs> no, you're right. So t- no, I sorry, wrong band, but I do know where we are now. You know, you know I'm old, are. and you'll know the song the now. Moment. You'll have that moment tonight. Yeah. You know that you don't get embarrassed about anything, but you'll remember it's been a bad day. Please, I take my picture because it's one of his. Yes, it does. His well, it says, I mean, people will. I know people will be listening, thinking, "Well, you know, that's just very rude of him to not do selfies." But 
I, honestly, life's too short. It's just too short. Fair and but it's just going to live live in somebody's cloud on their iPhone. <laughs> it's not exactly going to you know. It's not changing the world in any way. Well, no, but it might make someone's day, which is you know, which has got to. Be- yeah, well, I know, but you know, I'd rather give them money. <laughs> so, if people came so is that, is that and I have a fiver, I'd rather pay some. I'd, I would. I'd rather give people a fiver. Just say no. But here's a fiver. Go away. <laughs> you know. I mean, you've you've set yourself up now, Jeremy. That's the... I have. It's just suddenly occurred to me. I would. I would. I genuinely would. I'd rather pay people. And I hate having my photographs taken. I absolutely well, loathe it. This is the second time you've you've kind of put yourself in it with with the old money thing. Because I remember many moons ago. You, there was the hacking thing, and you so you put your own bank account details and source code, and and if I, I remember rightly, someone managed to set up a direct debit to Diabetes UK. Is that they right? They did. That's absolutely <laughs> right. Absolutely right. There was some hapless civil servant had left his laptop on the train, as is their way. No one's doing that. And there was this big brouhaha about it contained millions of people's bank details, and I thought the bank thought. Their, their sort codes and their account numbers. And I thought, well, what good's that? All you can do when you have that information is pay money into the account. Yeah. So I, I published mine in the Sun in huge letters. This is my bank account number. This is the sort code. And it transpired that it was a diabetic charity. Somehow managed to set up a direct debit for five hundred pounds a month, and then of course you feel terrible saying, "Well, I'm, no, no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping it." Did you stop it? You think, <laughs> well, this was it. This was the awful thing. You go, "Oh my God, I'm going to stop the charity," but I thought, "No, no," because they haven't. They've taken a liberty here. Right. So um, I'd rather get. I should give the money to another charity rather than give it to them because they've taken a liberty. Because <laughs> they were. But it was my own. <laughs> well, it's they... my own stupid fault. Look, it was. I just made a, a typical bombast, Jeremy. Oh, I. And then of course, it made to look like an idiot. <laughs> um, but that happens quite a lot in my life. I'll be honest. Well, that's part of the fun, isn't it? So yeah, exactly. So yeah. Top Gear became a super brand. Obviously, not not overnight, but you know. You, you knew it was going to be huge, uh, you know, three, four seasons into the, the Holy Trio, you know, the three of you together. Yeah, and, sure. And you also were in charge of or, or had a, a back-end situation with the merchandising. So, you you know, you had that going on as well, which must have been... A- no, not not initially. No, no, that was much later. And actually, I didn't know it was going to be huge. And it wasn't particularly huge. It wasn't particularly talked about or watched until... Richard Hammond had his, well, the first of his many big accidents. <laughs> right. Um, and it was that huge crash that sort of appeared on the front page of every newspaper and on news bulletins. And it was, you know, there were live, there was a gaggle of satellite dishes and so on outside his hospital in uh, in Leeds. And, um, and that really catapulted the program into the national consciousness where it hadn't been before. Um and it was only after that, you know, because I profited from Richard Hammond's misfortune, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, um, so, so did he, to be fair. Well, we all did. We all profited from his misfortune. But, um, you know, that's why every couple of years when we think that the ratings are, are dwindling, we're always happy to see him at the bottom of another mountain, <laughs> having been a paramedic, cutting his trousers off again. Um <laughs> I honestly sometimes wonder if he's forgotten how to take his own trousers off because he has to have been cut off by paramedics most days as far as I can work out <laughs> before he goes in the air ambulance. Um, so, yes, it did. Uh, Top Gear did become enormous. I mean, I think it was for a couple of years the most watched program in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, non-sporting thing, but um, 
yeah, I think it was it was it was the sort of friends of its time. It was huge, absolutely huge. Um, what was it three hundred and fifty million people watching it around the world? I mean, I know BBC's most of its income came from sales of Top Gear, so it was a very important show for them for yes. a while. Yes, and and indeed for you, and and of course, you know, it, it ended in unfortunate circumstances. Mm, I guess, tears. Well, yeah, and 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 obviously, you must have been heartbroken about about coming to an end. Oh, devastated. I mean, I was my baby, and I sort of lost it, so I was very sad. But again, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I sort of got used to luck riding into town on a white horse shortly after bad luck, and it did. And along came Jeff Bezos, and um, off we go again. Yes, yes, exactly. How how quickly was the, because I've read somewhere that within 24 hours of, of the of the incident, the altercation, whatever you want to call it, you, you had been approached by a Russian TV network to, to, to transfer to them. Is that accurate? Yeah, there was, yeah, there was oh, I mean, with Russians, um, Qataris, um, just everywhere. And Americans, lots of Americans. Um, yeah, we were. It's very unusual that an entire, um, a very successful show suddenly becomes available on the free market with yeah. fully formed with its editor, its presenters, its crews, its produce, its production team. I mean, every single person decamps and says, "Right, well, we're off." Which must um, have been incredible for you to have that loyalty. Well, it was. It was. It was great to see you know the entire team sort of saying, "All right, well, we'll go with." Poor old, well, not poor old Jesuit, we're on about. Well, we'll go, you know, they all came over to Amazon, which was, I mean, it was very, it was very nice, very reassuring and great. And um, and contributed to the sort of immediate success of the Grand Tour because it was not like we put a new team together. It yeah. was the old team with a new batch on it. Did anyone um, need so, an extra prod? Did anyone need a private phone call from you going? Well, I wouldn't go into. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go into any of that. You know, behind the scenes. But by and large, I'd say ninety nine point nine percent of everybody just came over straight away. Wow! And then the Amazon deal landed. Like you say, Jeff Bezos became the new, the new man in charge. I, I've, yeah. heard, I've heard Andy say you, you've only ever had one email from Jeff himself. Is is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, and I I forgot to open it. I was going, I was doing ah. a thing on an, an American. What's the last thing on your phone? Sort of a YouTube thing a couple of years ago, and they were saying, "How many unread emails have you got?" And I said, "Well, all of them. I never open emails." And they said, "Well, how many?" I said, "I don't." I looked, and it was twelve thousand emails unread. I mean, I just, the emails bore me because full of people reaching out. I'm going to reach out to reach out to them, and I just think I don't know what you're talking about. I never get to the end of an email, so I don't open them as a general rule. And um, and <laughs> I was just scrolling through, saying, so I've got the one from him, one from him. I'm like, there's one here from Jeff Bezos, and I hadn't opened it, but it was the only one we ever had. It just said good luck, and it was nice of him to do it. Yeah. He's running, he's running a pretty big business, it so it's taking trouble to send an email to three Herberts who are doing a car show on his prime video. It was a nice gesture. Did, did you reply? I one said I opened it, so yes, it began with, I'm sorry for the delay. <laughs> 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 not very good. We're about six months in or a year in. 
Hope you're enjoying yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed the first year, but I haven't replied to you. What's your favourite episode been? Yeah, all of that. Uh, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and of course, we've seen the Grand Tour take on you know two two sort of different forms now. You had the tent for a while, which was great fun, but but the tent came mm-hmm. to an end, and and then it just you know there was this decision. You know, I don't know whether it was you that made it or someone else that the you know what the fans want, as it were, are the specials, which of course is what you're famed for. You know, these mm-hmm. wonderful, epic, crazy adventures that are part travel yeah, show. Exactly. Part car show, part buddy movie, etc. And they, exactly. are, they are more movies, actually, aren't they? They're feature films. They are. I mean, they're an hour and a half. We make sure that they don't go out over an hour and a half because once you do that, you are in feature film territory. We're not. We don't make features. You know, it's not. We're we still a TV show, uh, and it is just a special. So we keep them to under an hour and a half. But um, they, they certainly have the, the look and feel of a, of a big movie because of the enormous amount of work done by the editing team. Yes, and brilliant work. And I mean, I'm not obviously the camera crews are, and the sound recorders and everyone is 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 responsible for a, a, an astonishing look that program has. Um, and then the editors this year have had to work in COVID, so we came back from Madagascar with probably 1,200 hours of um, footage, and that has to be edited down to an hour and a half, wow. an hour and a half. <laughs> And you can't be in the same room as one another. No. So they were having to do it remotely. I mean, I, I don't know how they've done it. it it's truly, it's a truly epic um, achievement on their part. It really is. I imagine lots of caffeine. I, I can't. I, 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 yes, I mean, frustration of it must have been. So, it's, it's a slow process. Any editing at the best of times. When you're at home, and the producers at home, and the other editors at home, and you're having to somehow link in what you're thinking I, mean, I don't know how they did it I do not know how they did it but anyway they've done it they've done, they've a, done a it. heck of a job with a massive hunt mm. you know there's there's mm. moments of hilarity there are humbling moments it's it's everything we've come to know and love from the three of you doing crazy well, wild things but it's thank you there's, there seems real soul in this one if that makes sense um it was yeah I mean it's 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 not like we've done Scotland now, and I know that they're saying in the edit that's very unplugged, very um, because it's not. We couldn't go abroad, obviously. I think everyone will understand why. Yeah. Um, so we did Scotland, and then they're saying that's unplugged. I mean, Madagascar is it, it's big, you know, it's a big, grand film in in the sense that we started reunion and then move over to um, Madagascar. And, you know, very few people have been to Madagascar. Very few people know anything about it. You know, it's bigger than Germany. Wow. It's huge. You just tend to think of it as like a Maldive or a Seychelles, but it's not. It's massive. Yeah. And, and, so, and rather um, helpfully, home to the RN5, supposedly the worst road in the world. Well, yes, that's what everybody, um, everyone um, has said. It's The RN5 is the worst road in the world. It, 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 it isn't a road. I mean, it was. The French built it and said, there you are, the RN5. And the Madagascan said, well, if that's your idea of a road, you can get lost. So the French were thrown out. Um, it's, it's just, it's, are you seen a dried up riverbed? Because it's worse than that. It's, it's shockingly bad. You can't really drive on it. Not, certainly not in a Bentley <laughs> or a Caterham. <laughs> Well, you had, you had the MFB, obviously, the, the Bentley, Bentley uh, Continental GT, which actually looked like it was having a whale of a time most of the time. It was heroic, that car. Heroic. Um, I'm, I'm desperate to get it. We're having some 
problems with um, the DBLA, but hopefully we can get around that so that it can come and live with me because I, I absolutely adored that car. It's the nicest car I've ever driven, ever, including wow. the Lexus LFA. It's, it's determination. It's bulldog spirit to just simply, it never went over anything. It, it only went through. I am going through you and there is nothing on God's green earth that's going to stop me. And I really, really liked its heroic, plucky, not plucky actually, solid nature. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Car. I've, I've fantastic. always found driving Bentleys to be like driving a very fast cloud, but I've never had to take it on the sort of terrain that you've had it on. No, I mean, this was it. It was a heavily modified Bentley. There was very little Bentley left in it by the time we finished. But um, nevertheless, the interior was Bentley, the engine was Bentley, and the body was by and large Bentley. Um, but uh, no, it was, it, was a, it was a fantastic machine. Um, which it had to be because Madagascar is not, it's a salutary lesson of, um, of, of Brexit because, of course, we began on the reunion, which is a small island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, yes. and that is a part of France, as much a part of France as Brest or Nancy or Nice, Paris. Um, when you fly there from Paris to reunion, it's the longest internal flight in the world. You don't need to show a passport or anything when you land because you're still in France. It's not like a, French protectorate, it is France. Brilliant. Um, and it's, so consequently, it's in the EU, it was the first place because of time zones where the Euro, a Euro transaction happened. Somebody bought a bag of light cheese. Anyhow, so that's in the EU and it's smooth roads and everybody's got BMW and hotels and bars and it feels, it feels like you're in the south of France actually when you're there. Um, and then you have a short hop across the water to life outside the EU which is a very different, muddy, poverty-stricken um, part of these things. It was, oh, heavens, this is, <laughs> this is what it's like when you cross a channel <laughs> out of the EU into, an, into, a, into a, a, a non-EU country. Um, but Madagascar, for all of it, um, it is very poor, very, very poor. Mm. Um, but, oh, heavens, it's beautiful and fascinating. Um, nice. So um, it was, I really enjoyed doing it, being there. It's a great. I really enjoyed being in my Bentley and watching how just how muddy James May got in his catering. Absolutely hilarious! It was genuinely wheezing, inducing hilarity. It was brilliant. Uh, I mean, I can remember going through one. I'm going to be honest: sewage-infested lake, really. (laughs) And the Bentley went. It had snorkels on it so that the engine could breathe even when it was in five feet of water. Yeah. And it was up to the top of the windscreen, the water. So I was probably four feet of water and thought brown, brown, brown water, some evil smelling brown water. And I knew that James May was behind me. And I just thought, <laughs> this is hilarious because he is simply going to go under the water here. Uh, well, if it, it isn't water, but under whatever this is. Yes. And he did. And it was all captured on those waterproof cameras, captured every bit of his misery which I mean there is something because James I don't know what it is about James when he I think if Hammond and I are falling over and getting muddy and what have you it's and it's quite funny obviously but when it's James it's like watching a librarian fall over somehow <laughs> it's just, there's something very funny about watching James May suffering from great discomfort that perhaps it wouldn't be quite so funny if it were Richard or me but it's actually although Richard had the real hilarity comes from watching James May in great discomfort, being watched by you and Richard watching yeah. him. That's that's the that's the best. It's great fun. Well, there was a lovely bit in Mozambique where he put a fish tank in the back of his Mercedes estate car, 
but he didn't put a lid on it. Yes. So every time he broke, a <laughs> torrent of water came out of the fish tank and went over his head. And I, I still, even now, I'm starting to laugh just thinking about it. It was unbelievably funny because he does look like a drowned spaniel when he's all wet. <laughs> it's all um, hair. Yeah, it's there's hair everywhere. No, it was, it was a, it was a, yeah. There was there were some very very funny moments in um, in Madagascar. I mean, the problem I suppose if we've got one problem with it is that it was so idyllic. The beaches were so white, and yeah. the sea was so warm. And the jungle was so green and so verdant and so full of, you know, delicious treats and bananas and coconuts on every tree and so forth. But actually the viewer's thinking, you're not really suffering here, actually, <laughs> are you? It's not like when we went to the North Pole or Bolivia. Yes, true. Um, I can, you know, we once did a, a thing for the Grand Store in Barbados. And of course, if you were to fall off a boat into the Humber estuary, people would go, oh, heavens above all. When we um, produced semen, you know, we went off and did um, in the, the, the river boats down through yes. the Mekong. Yes. And you fall in there and there's, oh dear, heavens, that's terrible. But falling in, in the Caribbean, people go, well, <laughs> well, that's not a hardship, is it? <laughs> and there is an element of that in Madagascar that it's, it's just too, too pretty for you to have any form of discovery. I mean, we did. I mean, sometimes I'd get to the campsite at night and the rosé wasn't as chilled as I was hoping. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, tough, tough, <laughs> tough times, yeah. <laughs> or, I'd, you know, my banana daiquiri, I'd run out of rum and I couldn't make a banana daiquiri out of the fresh root in the trees. You know, so there were some desperate, desperate moments where we got through them. Um, it's a it's a fun show it's a fun it show. is a fun um, show it is a fun yeah. show and i'm thrilled scotland's happening that's great do, do we know when that'll happen is that we don't have to wait another um, minute, hopefully well no i mean i would have guessed you'd have seen madagascar in may um and yet here we are and you know in december yeah um so when is scotland i'm gonna, I'm gonna ready steady june okay it won't be <laughs> it won't be but that's when I, it could be shown in June. I think. I think the key is they're going to keep coming, right? That's that's the important. Yeah, thing. no, we're absolutely we're we're down to do um, several more, Good. several more. Let's put it like that. Fantastic. Um, which is great, it's great from our point of view because the thing is, is that Richard and James, we uh, and I pretend to hate each other, but when we get together, and we don't get together on purpose when we're not working, but when we do, it's an immediate we fall about laughing. It's yeah. immediately start laughing. And then just laugh and laugh and laugh the whole time we're together. It's a chemistry that hasn't been manufactured yet. It's evolved over many, many years, which is great. And that's why it works. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Jeremy, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've given me an hour of your time. I hope it hasn't been too, uh, like, pulling... No, I've enjoyed it. Great chat. Great chat. Even though you do have exactly the same voice as the um, motoring editor on the Sunday Times. (laughs) Well, I've never met him, but I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. He's called Nick Rufford, and you two sound exactly the same. He's my brother. Is, that's amazing. Wow. It's uncanny. What are the chances? Jeremy, I won't be emailing you a thanks, but I might text you thank you, and that'll be it. I really Do appreciate that. your time. That's very kind thank, of you. Thank you very much. Thank good you. luck with it all. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. The Andy J Podcast. So there you go. Oh, wow. A full hour with Jeremy Clarkson, and... Um, I just thought he was absolutely fascinating and extremely generous with his answers, his thoughts and indeed his time. Now, as I mentioned at the start, we have a huge back catalogue of massive celebrity names we'd love you to check out. If you're new to the Andy J podcast, then why don't you 
click the old subscribe button. We have so many massive names coming up and a huge catalogue of people that we've already spoken to, from Katie Mellower and Catherine Jenkins to Darren Brown, James May, Ronan Keating, Celia Imre, Nico Rosberg, Nigel Havers, Jason Isaacs, Catherine Ryan, Gokwan, Anton Dubeck, and many, many, many more. I mean, we have a colossal catalogue of fascinating celebrity conversation. So I really hope that you make us an appointment to listen each week and we'd love your company. Of course, you can find us uh, online, andy.j on Instagram and andyj on Twitter, etc. Although, uh, unlike Jeremy, I'm not a huge Twitter fan. And you'd love to, well, I would love it if you would check out our sister podcast, The Automotive Skewing Driven Chat. And on there we have the likes of Mike Brewer and Drew Pritchard and Ewan Thomas and some absolutely brilliant car skewing conversations. So if cars are your thing, please do check out our sister podcast, Driven Chat. It's been doing pretty well in the UK and we're very, very proud of it. And I'm very happy to tell you that it's anchored by my good friend John Markar, the lovely Amy Shaw, and I'm involved in it as well. And we just have some really good guests week in, week out. So check out the Driven Chat podcast as well. And as for us, the Andy J pod, like, subscribe. And uh, if you want to leave a review, can you, can you only do that if you're going to say something nice? Because, you know, life's too short and all that. Thanks for your company. Have a great week. And if you're listening when this is going out on the 22nd of December or within that week, happy festives. If you're listening in the future, I hope 2021 or 22 or 28 or wherever you're listening is going well for you. Take it easy. Bye-bye. The Andy J Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.